you're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. And this is our Season 1 wrap-up show. With the completion of Season 1, we have a lot to talk about. And joining me, we have Barrent. What's going on, guys? Very excited to be back on the Season Wrap-Up show. Lots of exciting things to talk about. Mark. Yo, what's up, Star Wars fans? Let's talk some Rebels. And the professor himself, Nathan P. Butler. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Time to wax philosophical about some Rebels. Returning to us after a bit of a hiatus, we have Jen. Hey, you bucketheads. Miss me? Yeah. (laughs) Now, Jen, you had a hiatus. Are you okay? Uh, Yeah. For surgery? (laughs) <laughs> School ate my life for a while, but I am back. <laughs> and we are thrilled to have you. Now, to those of you who are wondering who our personal fulcrum is, we are going to be introducing them in our Celebration Anaheim show. Certain members of the group are going to be attending, and they'll be discussing all the information that comes out about Rebels, and hopefully giving us their impressions of those first two episodes that everyone's supposed to be seeing, and I'm very bummed that I'm not going to be there to see it with them. But until then, we'll just let you guess or wonder who that's going to be. But tonight, we need to discuss the good, the bad, what we liked, and what we thought could have been better about Rebels Season 1. But before we talk about that, why don't we go all the way back to May of 2013 when they announced the Rebels animated series. And remember, this was still before we got the last of our Clone Wars episodes. And I kind of like thinking back now that we've had the first season under our belt. What was everybody, if you remember, your initial impressions, your initial thoughts about this new series, especially coming as it did the first content under the Disney banner. And Barrett, why don't you uh, start us off on this? Well, I'm thinking back to when they made the announcement, and you're correct, we were still in the midst of getting all of the Clone Wars content out. And I just remember feeling how quick it was that they made this announcement. Like, they wanted to really keep that something Star Wars on television. And what could they do? You know, what did they have out there What did Lucasfilm have out there that they could use until this movie came out? And I think it was brilliant that they used Filoni, who was already on the Clone Wars and kind of just shifted everything over. I mean, I think he took his whole crew over there to Disney. So I just remember thinking of of why are they doing it like this? You know, there has to be some sort of reason. And I got kind of worried that I wouldn't like the show, you know, that they were kind of rushing it. So 
going back to when they were making that announcement and, and to where I'm at now, I'm in a whole totally different mindset as far as how I feel about the characters, how I feel about the show. But I just remember at the time feeling that things were going to be rushed, you know, that they never went this fast. Lucasfilm never went this fast with anything. You know, Baron, I think you're right there. When I think back to, you know, when they announced Rebels and when we started seeing, you know, the first information about it and especially when we started seeing some of the initial animation, I like you, I was concerned. I I really tried pushing that to the back of my mind and I was thinking, you know, this could be great and it's a real opportunity. But I'll admit, this was the first content coming under, you know, the guidance of the mouse, and I I was worried. Now, Jen, what about you? What were your initial feelings when it was announced that there was going to be a Rebels series? I was kind of half and half. Like, so I'm, I wasn't entirely thrilled about a series in this time frame with characters we didn't know, um, just because we'd spent so much time investing in the Clone Wars characters and, you know, the episode, the prequel level characters and the, the characters from the original series and we just i was kind of not looking forward to seeing new people but hearing actually that um dave filoni was going to be partnering up with greg weissman i was a little bit more excited just because i've been a fan of weissman's work for quite some time since i was pretty much a kid so that made me feel a lot more confident in like the what the writing would be and that this small like unknown crew might be a lot more interesting Man, I was really trepidatious. I mean, granted, this was before we knew that Legends was put off and it became, you know, Legends as proper. Uh, you know, so I didn't know any of that, but I didn't know where we were going from here. I, I think I was a lot like Jen. I didn't really want to go back to this era, per se, though I was OK with getting to know a new group of people. I think for me, you know, at that time frame, you know, I, I felt more secure with a new group of people that we hadn't seen in the EU or things like that. You know, I was worried about the retcons, you know, what were the retcons going to be to this and what was going on, you know, because there was a lot of that with the Clone Wars at that time where we were still waiting to see if the Gendy series was going to line up with the comics and the books and everything else that Leland Chi had told us we were going to get. And then, of course, you know, it never happened. So I was very curious as what was going to come. I was excited, but I was definitely trepidatious. And it took so long for Filoni to get their foothold in the Clone Wars, you know, with the Sky Guy and all that stuff like that. Towards the end of the Clone Wars, it was it was a masterpiece, but it took so long it, that that worried me. Mm-hmm. My reaction was very similar to Mark's, and for pretty much the same reasons. We had just learned, just a little over half a year, I guess, before that, that Lucasfilm was being sold to Disney. So it was a big deal that this was coming as the first big project from them. But at the same time, we were still a year or so away from the announcement that, well... The previous official continuity is being shoved aside as Legends, and we're going to build something new uh, to fit more with what's coming up with the new films and everything. And until that announcement was made, that was a really difficult thing for me to get my mind around because I couldn't help but think, wonderful, here's another era that has a bunch of decent stories in it, some intricate backgrounds, the Corellian trilogy, the Han Solo novels, the stuff that we got with The Force Unleashed that Lucas supposedly was partly behind. Oh, good. How are they going to take a freaking wrecking ball to this again and create a shattered continuity mess that they may or may not ever actually fix? I expected the approach of the Clone Wars, which was, we're going to do whatever the hell we want to do because, hey, we're in charge now, whether it's Lucas or Disney or Filoni or whoever, and 
whatever we say goes, everything else has to mesh with it. There was no announcement about a story group yet. There was no announcement of a different canon. It was simply, here's another chock-full era, send in the Wrecking Crews. It's hard for me to get excited for a new Star Wars project based just on things like seeing characters and hearing a general concept. Like, I'm excited for a new Star Wars film with The Force Awakens. I'm really not all that excited at all about characters or situations coming up in it because we don't know enough. You know, just showing me pictures of characters in a trailer isn't really enough to get me excited. Uh, maybe I need to kiss a Wookiee or something. But because of that, my initial impressions were kind of meh, because that kind of thing doesn't usually get me all that psyched. And you had that extra worry about what's it going to do with continuity. Oddly enough, when the shackles came off, and this became the heart in part of a new canon, I was excited, and I've really enjoyed it with those binders taken off. Had that not been the case, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much. So for me, it was very much an ooh with a little bit of hope until the binders came off, then I was hopeful. Gearing up for this, as we've talked about in previous episodes, they provided us with four shorts. And as we've already all discussed, this, for some of us, really worked, and for others, didn't. But it was a bit of a change from what we had seen previously in gearing up for any other Star Wars content. What we initially took for little throwaways, it turns out, actually meant something in the season itself. And I found, or I'm finding in retrospect, that that's kind of an interesting approach. And and I kind of like it. And I'm wondering if we're going to get any of that for season two. Mm, I hadn't even thought about that. The downside, though, of course, to that is those cost us an episode, right? You know, Spark of Rebellion cost us two episodes, but at least it was two episodes in length. The four shorts cost us an episode in the production run. They had 16 episodes to make, and they were able to make 13 regulars, Spark of Rebellion, and those four, and we got this relatively short season. A good season, but I'm not sure that if the trade-off was four more shorts versus one more full episode that most fans would want to go with more shorts. Well, I, for one, would not want to go with the shorts. I mean, I can see how they were needed before to introduce us to the characters, but I kind of have to agree with you. Nathan, that it didn't do enough for me to introduce them to me for me to like them with these shorts. An extra episode would have because these episodes are fabulous. They're fantastic. So I hope they don't do that. I mean, if they want to make more shorts, fine. But having it as a trade off for an episode, I don't think that's the way to go for season two. Yeah, I got to agree with that assessment 100%. I mean, as they as they stood as shorts, you know, they were cool. They were fun. I didn't you know, squee like some other fans did when they saw him because I wanted to see more. But then finding out that they actually meant something to the series, that they weren't just throwaway was nice. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to trade that to see that coming again. Um, you know, if they wanted to do that, that's fine. But but yeah, not at the expense of full length episodes. I would much rather have a full length episode than even four or five short ones. I understand that. But again, we've had this discussion before. It's quality versus quantity. And we did get a shortened season for whatever reason, but they were, as Baron said, they were really quality episodes. And one thing that I found myself kind of wondering is, could they maintain that type of quality if they had to stretch it out some more? I would like to think that they could, but I'm not sure about that. The question I want to pose to you guys is that the sh- the shorts were supposed to be how to set the tone of how the season was going to go. I don't think those shorts set the tone 
at all of how the season felt to me. And I think it probably did a lot more damage to a person like me because the season did not feel how those shorts were supposed to make it feel. I don't know. It didn't feel like that know. to me. I agree and disagree because I I know when we saw the one, what is it, Ghost of the Machine, when you had Hera and, and you had Kanan talking to Chopper and stuff, the banter back and forth there seemed very much as what we get throughout the show, not just with those characters, but even with other characters, the, the jovial humor, uh, if you will. And then Sabine... While, yeah, we don't see Sabine in that role that often, when she does take on that role, that is kind of what we saw. Uh, but maybe it's the Ezra one that, that's the harder one. I don't know. They all just felt very, I mean, obviously they were meant to be throwaway, but they felt throwaway to me. But at the same time, they didn't get you to latch on to the characters or latch on to the show, really. I mean, Chopper came off fairly well, but we didn't really see enough depth to Zeb or Sabine or Ezra to feel like it was going to be anything other than Scooby-Doo in space. You know, we needed full episodes to really get to know the characters. I, I think I would agree that it may have done somewhat of a disservice, although it did provide that first point of crossover where Property of Ezra Bridger became the last chapter of Ezra's Gamble, the book that sh- started to show that, in theory, seamless integration of different media under the story group, which is a big plus. Now, I'm going to disagree with you guys. Normally, we, we see pretty much eye to eye, but I liked the shorts. I think they kind of whet the appetite. And for me, somebody who was hesitant about not only, you know, what they were going to do with the series, but the look of the series, it, it drew me back. It drew me back in. It, it made me a little bit more hopeful. And then we find out episodes, specifically Art Attack, where we get introduced to Sabine and you know, what she's doing to this little Imperial outpost are directly referenced in the last episode of the season, Fire Across the Galaxy. It was that same episode that I realized what it was about this series that was driving me nuts. And it actually, once I realized that, I was able to get over that hurdle. You know, it was the stormtroopers themselves, the modeling of them, the way that the frown was so deep and really set me back and jarred me because the Clone Wars, the, this, the armor of the troopers was so glorious and so beautiful. Even the cosplay, uh, you know, the costumes in real life themselves look so gloriously well done, you know, and then you go to that and it was just so cartoony and so over-exaggerated that once I finally figured out, okay, that is, that's what it is about this. It's really driving me nuts. Then I was able to get over it and, and it, it stopped being this thing that just kind of rubbed sand in my eye. You know, Mark, I'm going to kind of go with you on that. The look of these characters and the look of this whole series was something that I was initially very concerned about. I wasn't sold on the look of Kanan and the look of Ezra and and the look of some of the troopers, but I think as time has gone by, I've kind of been able to reconcile it or at least get past it like you. What I kind of look at the stormtroopers is almost like it's an earlier version of the trooper armor that we see in A New Hope. That maybe, you know, this this is one of the steps that they took. It's a it's a version of kind of converting from the phase two clone trooper armor that we get in Revenge of the Sith to the armor that we see in the classic trilogy. Kind of like how the NFL does those throwback uniforms, like, here's our new advanced Stormtrooper armor. But no, note, it's got the look of that pre-Republic look to it because we wanted to have you guys feel safe and secure like in those old days. But now we've got the Imperial might. Exactly. I don't know. I like the art style compared, say, to the Clone Wars. 
that we're seeing. And, and remember, there was a point at which many fans, many of us included, were decrying, why does it have to look different, man? Why can't it look like the Clone Wars? You know, shouldn't beards always look like they're on a nutcracker? <laughs> I think the only thing that I don't find is better here with the art style than what we got with the Clone Wars is what you guys were mentoring. It's the Macquarie stylings. The Macquarie inspirations are outstanding, but then you get the specific stylings, like the helmets of the Stormtroopers, Vader's helmet. And I think for a while, those are going to rub me the wrong way because that's just not the style that I'm used to. It'd be interesting if we also perhaps saw maybe the Marvel comic series, since it's all one level of canon now, have some of them maybe lean that direction in the art style. But they wouldn't dare do that in the Darth Vader series, for instance. And yet we get it here, you know, write it off to stylization, but it's something else to get used to. When Clone Wars started, we didn't really like that necessarily either. It was, why can't it be more like the Tartakovsky series? Only time we haven't done that, I don't think, is with the Tartakovsky series. I don't think anyone said, why can't it be more like droids? Oh, no, that was me. I was like, oh, God, I hate Samurai Jack. Really, Lucas? You had to want to go with that style? I hated that style. But did you want it to be more like droids and Ewoks? No, that's true. And eventually I got over it. I was like, they're cool toys. I mean, I guess for me, I've always been more interested in the story than, you know, how it's presented. I can kind of almost get past it. But Mark, I like you, the initial look of the Tartakovsky series was not something that I liked either. Other things that were carried over from Clone Wars to Rebels is the music. We had Kevin Kiner back. And even though we had him back, I think that we found that the musical cues in Rebels are much more almost directly lifted from the original trilogy soundtrack and, to a lesser degree, the prequel trilogy soundtracks. So what did you guys think of that? How do you like the music? How is it working for you? I really like it sometimes, and then other times I feel like they've stolen a bit too much from the original John Williams soundtrack, where like they have those... the the little musical cues. It's not even like the actual soundtrack, but just tiny little cues of like, especially um, Luke Skywalker's theme. And I feel like it almost gets overdone to the point where I didn't think it was the same composer. It's such a different use of the the music and such a different style that it felt like a completely different person. And, and sometimes I feel like it works. I feel like his original stuff is actually pretty good. When he goes overboard with, with lifting from, from John Williams, it actually is distracting to me. But I thought it worked. I mean, yeah, it kind of gets like the lens flare with J.J. Abrams' Trek films where you're like, okay, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. But I think overall it worked, and it definitely gave that presence that the whole show is really good at doing of capturing that original feeling that you had. This was a case of it really depended, right? I mean, when they lifted music directly from the film and put it into an unfamiliar situation, it felt jarring. When he took it and riffed on it, it was awesome. You know, familiar themes. I mean, even the opening theme, like the main theme of Rebels, is a great riff on the regular Star Wars theme. The jarring thing, of course, the most jarring thing, was, of course, the dan 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 which has been mentioned. But it seems like they're starting to get away from that, and I hope that they actually do, now that it's more of a thematic theme and just take the music from the opening on through the Rebels logo. So for now... I think the jury's still out on where it goes from here, but it's like the series was still trying to find its footing on music, whereas Clone Wars very early on had its own style of music, right, you know, from the film onward. As for me, I was there at WonderCon when they had the Rebels panel and they actually played 
that opening theme for us. And I recorded it. They didn't say we couldn't record it. I recorded it, listened to it over and over. But as you said, Jonathan, so far it's worked. It works, you know, and it's exciting that they're trying to merge, trying to do something new. But most of the time it works. And I think that that's the point. When they have to take original scores and make it into something new, I think it's more difficult. But it's work. it works for me. Now, as far as the music is concerned, in my opinion, I think that it was kind of easier to like the Clone Wars music because the Clone Wars, they try to do something totally different. I mean, they didn't have the any of the original music, really. And I think that Filoni had said that George Lucas, Mr. Lucas, George, I'm calling him George, like I know the guy, he had a lot of rules and regulations on what could be used and what couldn't be used. And here, it seems like they've kind of opened the vault for Filoni and crew. And they're trying to merge the original scores with a little something new. And I think it works. I think what you said was right. It, it does work. And it never really bothered me. You know, that dun, 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 that never bothered me, Nathan. I don't know why. It, there's so, it's really interesting to me how certain things will bother some people and certain other people it doesn't bother but that never bothered me the music did its job for me as bringing me into the moment when it needed to and like i said before you could really feel the disney in the music you know just like you could feel the disney in the way the characters are on the screen there's just something about it that's disney-fied and it's working it's different but it's not the different to the point where i don't like it it's working for me and as far as the, the dun, 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 it's the headphones thing. Every once in a while, I will listen through the headphones when listening off of iTunes or listening on one of my devices. And it's like, you know how there's that big that big volume difference on some channels between shows and the commercials that are with them where the commercials blow your eardrums. Mm-hmm. It's like they're preparing you for that by blowing out your eardrums ahead of time. It's not as bad on standard television unless I've got it turned way up. But, man, when I put those earphones in, my eardrums are bleeding when that happens. It's like, wake up! Rebels is on! Uh, yeah, if they chose anything else, it wouldn't be so bad. And that's why once they started shifting away, it was like, oh, thank God. You are like the, you guys are like the kids who caught the bad banana at three. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. not all bad banana. Before we start talking about some of the guest stars on the show, why don't we talk about our core characters, our core group of rebels? What's nice about this group, in my opinion, is you've got six basic characters that a lot of the the content and a lot of the action is spread between. I mean, obviously, our point of view character is Ezra. Uh, he's the one that's coming into this already established group. He's the newcomer, and he's our way of discovering all these all these things. Now, what do you guys think of Ezra? Is he a good sort of lead for this group, at least lead character? Is he going to draw in what he needs to do, or has he drawn you in? I do not like Ezra, and I think that's one of the problems I have with this series, is he is, Barry, you were talking about Disneyfication, he is so very obviously molded to just be the self-insert kind of, you know, boy point of view character, and the fact that he is so prevalent in all the episodes like he's just always there and the show and it's always really kind of about him i find that very frustrating because i feel like there's a very rich universe we could be looking at and it's been like really centered on somebody who is 
kind of very cookie cutter. He's lost his parents, which is just like, it's a Disney thing. Like you cannot have a protagonist without tragic backstory. And it's really frustrating. And like, he has the super special lightsaber and, and, you know, he's, makes these bad decisions, but they end up being okay because he's the main protagonist. Like, I find him very frustrating. He's like Luke if, like, Luke was Miles Morales. You know what I mean? <laughs> if Luke if Luke became boring and had no personality, he's our Luke. And I, I kind of see what you're saying. At first, at first he was like that. And I think they had to be really careful with his attitude because of the way they introduced Ahsoka. With the with how she was just kind of like, you know, I'm Ahsoka, Master Yoda sent me here, I'm your Padawan Sky Guy, and all this other stuff. And I think they wanted to be really careful about that, but at the same time, give him enough street smarts. But, I mean, come on, he's Aladdin. I mean, we've said it before, he's Aladdin with a lightsaber. And if you like Aladdin, you'll probably like Ezra. But that, like I said, at first, but Ezra grew on us. And I want to ask you this, Jen, in some of the scenes, some of the the episodes where Ezra really taps into the force that didn't bring you over to Ezra's camp. No, because it was always going to happen. There was never any way he was not going to really tap into the force. So it was just like, okay, here it is. Like, okay. And no, I just, I don't like the character. I'm sorry. (laughs) As far as Ezra, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you on some points, Jen, he was the sort of cookie cutter Disney fied character. He was, he did initially to me feel more Disney than Star Wars. But I think the turning point for me was Gathering Forces, the second part of the duology that happened kind of mid-season, where Ezra, who we always expected, or I, I mean, if you go by the Disney rules, is always going to come out squeaky clean. He didn't. He tapped the dark side. He went to the bad place. And this is where I went, huh? This character has a little bit more interest now. There's a little bit, there could be a little bit more to him. And I like that it's not just, well, everything's happily ever after, because that was the point where I didn't think it necessarily was going to be a happily ever after. Like, huh, it's Kip Duran in a Disney form. Isn't that just the regular hero's journey, though, where they kind of, they dabble in like something kind of questionable for a minute? Like, like, hey, Aladdin, he makes questionable choices he's lying and doing all this awful stuff but he's like redeemed in the end like isn't that isn't that still like the disney cookie cutter true and even luke did that i mean don't go into the weapon with your or don't go into cave with your weapons and yet he did that and then he rushed off to fight vader the difference is we don't necessarily know how ezra's going to come out of this unlike luke who was really the hero of the original trilogy unlike aladdin who is the hero of his movie and you know that they're going to be a happily ever after. I am still not convinced that this character is going to make it out alive or unscathed. We know he's not around, or we we at least strongly believe that he's not around during the original trilogy, neither is Kanan. Otherwise, we would have seen them. Yoda wouldn't have made such a big deal of Luke being the last of the Jedi if Kanan and Ezra were there. I don't necessarily think, and this was the moment for me where it really drove home, that Ezra isn't going to have to make that sacrifice or isn't necessarily going to turn. I mean, I think Filoni might be brave enough to go that direction. I don't know that Disney would be brave enough to go that direction with their protagonist. Possibly temporarily. You know, have him go dark for a little bit and then wind up redeeming himself, and that gives us another aspect of his character arc. But 
to do that with their main character would take a lot of guts. And I don't know, maybe once we see The Force Awakens and how they handle the franchise that way, there'll be a sense that they've got that kind of guts. But if there's anything we can tell by the way that they're doing the novels and the comics now is that Disney is playing it ungodly safe with this franchise to the point where nothing feels like it matters yet outside of this cartoon series. It's just, I don't know, it'd be nice to see them go that way. My opinion on Ezra actually changed around the same time that Jonathan's did, but for a completely different reason. I'm with Jen. Seeing him dip towards the dark side, that was always going to happen. If it didn't, it would have been way too, you know, kind of clean cut and wouldn't have had a lot of drama to his journey in the Force. To me, it was that Empire Day Gathering Forces pair that took him from, well, he's all right, he's better than Ahsoka was at the beginning, but he is kind of space Aladdin, to being a character that really sort of felt like he really had some depth to him, because that was where they really started kickstarting the aspect of his family and his issues with abandonment that not only play into the family, but play into things like, losing his other family when they go on certain missions and not wanting to lose Kanan, how he feels when it comes to Kanan thinking about Luminara training him. It seemed like a petulant episode earlier. The more we learn about his family, the more it fits this psychological development of the character. And Jonathan, you and I have talked quite a bit about how the psychological aspect of the characters are usually what draw me into it and and in a lot of ways draw you into it. That, to me, was the kicker. Ezra became a character to like for Ezra, instead of because he's the focal character of the show, with the moment that the the abandonment issues and his connections to others started to become something that felt like a driving force for the character. It was probably a driving force for the character throughout, but when it really started to become apparent, that's when, to me, he solidified. The other, I guess, point of view character to some degree that we get is Kanan, the man who becomes Ezra's teacher in the ways of the Force, and an individual who has to deal with his own backstory and his own emotional baggage. Kanan, who started life, we find out in the book uh, A New Dawn, Caleb Dune, was a Jedi Padawan who was forced to run for his life when Order 66 happened. And this is somebody who is struggling with his own acceptance of the Jedi legacy and who really has strayed from the past. And as I've been watching this in, in the past couple of days, I've been rewatching a lot of the episodes. And I think I'm coming to believe that Kanan may see his own redemption in his ability to train Ezra, that that's, that's how he sees his path back to the light. You know, this is a character who I, I'm, I'm torn about. I mean, there, there's certain parts of him that I, I find very trite. There are other parts that I really quite enjoy. I think I was still torn on this character up till that final arc where he is ready to sacrifice himself for the rest of the group because I didn't always believe that this character would be capable of it. But I think I'm coming around and I would really hope that they continue this in season two. Yeah, Kanan is one of my favorite characters. I mean, you know, you were talking about his falling from being a Padawan and all that. We're going to see that next April in The Last Padawan. I am so excited for that comic. Uh, the, the finale episode, they, they have a reference to that comic. You know, what was the last thing your master said to you? And, and Kanan's like, run. And the way he said that just amped me up. And, and Kanan's the character that has me wanting to learn more about the other characters. You know, when he talks to Hera and he calls her love and things like that, and she's calling him dear, I want to know, you know, was there a relationship there? Made me want to, you know, learn more about their past, how they got together. 
uh, reading a new Dawn wall. It, it felt more like it was Kanan's story. Again, through that, I wanted to know more about Hera. So there were a lot of those angles that that it's him and his interactions with the others that make me want to know more. You know, Ezra was a fun character on his own for what he is, but aside from being Aladdin, it was once Kanan found him and brought him under his wing, that's when I really started to care about the character. Zeb reminds me so much of Jane from Firefly uh, and, and the relationships there that I can't wait to find out how he came along in part of the crew. Uh, you know, I believe, Nathan, you had mentioned uh, Sabine's journal talks about how Kanan was the one that kind of brought her in. Again, I want to know more about that. Kanan seems to be, even though it's obvious that Hera is the leader of the group, he definitely feels like at times the heart of the group. Here's my problem with Kanan. What is Jedi about him? Besides him being a Jedi and holding the lightsaber, what is really Jedi about him? Nothing. He's not a good teacher. He's not confident about himself. He doesn't make any of the plans. He's not the leader. What? What is Jedi about him? Because he can meditate, he can use the Force. There's nothing that feels Jedi about Kanan. And that bothered me a lot until, like you said, Jonathan, the last arc or so, where he was willing to sacrifice himself like a Jedi. And he had nothing to lose, but he still didn't turn to the dark side. He still didn't go there. That's what makes him a Jedi now, is the sacrifice. Nothing to lose, but still didn't turn to the dark side. Up until then, it was very hard for me to get behind Kanan. But I think as in season two comes along, and like you said, Mark, when they release this, you know, the last Padawan, and you start seeing his training and what he actually had to do to get to where he's at, to where we know him now, I think it'll be more interesting. Um, but that was my issue with Kanan at first. I think you'd like A New Dawn a lot because it, it definitely gave you insight from Kanan's point of view as to, you know, what it was before and where he is at. Because he definitely feels lost in a lot of ways and he was making do with the best he could based off of the mission, uh, the transmission that, that Kenobi had sent out about, you know, go hide, be strong. Uh, so, you know, that would be something I would, I would highly recommend you checking out if that's something you're into. And that's why I'm really looking forward to that Padawan comic. I wonder if my impression of Kanan is very much the Stover effect, so to speak, again, where some other media has influenced my opinion of him to the point where I'm not really judging it based on what's in the show. Because in the show, I think the whole issue of, you know, what's a Jedi about him is a valid point. He starts out very far from being a Jedi in what we think, but very quickly, I mean, in Spark of Rebellion here, he is picking up the lightsaber and... The conflict within him about, you know, am I able to be a teacher? Can I be a good role model takes over and it stops being a conflict about should I have revealed myself? It's like the whole thing of him hiding himself goes away once Ezra's on the scene. I would have liked to have seen more depth to that. And because we've got a new dawn, we've got more depth to that. And hopefully the last Padawan will give us that as well. So to me, it's sort of a matter of I like the character. And I've never had an issue with the character. I've enjoyed him straight through. He's probably my favorite character of the series, unless you toss in Chopper just because he's a homicidal lunatic. But I think the fact that I was able to accept him sort of coming back into that role so quickly was because I'd already had time to see him struggling with it and starting to make the decision to, you know, use the force to save people, revealing himself to Hera uh, by accident, essentially. That whole conflict was handled in a completely different source. And in doing so, it gave me more of an appreciation, not to mention the fact you've got Freddie Prince Jr. doing the voice acting. And I mentioned earlier on about how I wonder if there's a difference 
in terms of the approach being taken to voice acting here and the emotion we can get out of it. Freddie Prince Jr. on those little subtle moments, especially early on in the season, was absolutely nailing it to the point where I was sitting back saying, wow, this is an animated series getting a performance like that. And that's even compared to some of the stuff we got back with The Clone Wars. So you give it a novel, you give it Freddie Prince Jr., I think this is a character I had a lot going for him to begin with that could very easily have been the stereotypical expanded universe. Oh, look, it's a Jedi who is in hiding time trying to come back into his own. Oh, goody. That half the friggin' RPG players on the planet have tried playing as at some point in one of the Star Wars role-playing games. Instead, solid character. But really, Cowboy Jedi? They come up with that to describe him? Yeah, I remember that was his description. He was the Cowboy Jedi. Filoni said that. That was in all the pre-production material. That's how he was described. That was that was the whole model. And, I mean, I guess I could kind of see it. I mean, even when you think back to New Dawn, he's described as a gunslinger. I don't know. I don't think it, I don't think it reflects. It doesn't. It doesn't. And, 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 the, and the final thing on Kanan is that, he, for me, is that when you have – the problem is, is that you have fans like myself who don't read the books – who don't buy the comics. There's a lot of 40 year olds out there who aren't going to read the last Padawan. You know, everything that we consume is going to be on television or in the movies. And if we don't have the, don't give ourselves that opportunity to read those other materials that are out there, this is what, this is the canon that we get and give us more. That's all I'm saying. Give me more Jedi. It reminds me of that line that he has in A New Dawn where he's talking about, you know, nobody messes with me, next one messes with me, goes to the uh, ER, and they're like, the ER's closed. Ah, oh, correction, next one either messes with me, goes to the morgue. Another character that was introduced in A New Dawn was the character of Hera. And, you know, when you come back to it, we really don't know a lot about Hera or how she got into this. Recently, we had it confirmed that she is... Cham Syndulla's daughter, a character that we got in The Clone Wars, and we know that she is the idealist. She is truly the the rebel of the group. She's the one who brought in Kanan, and she, she, you know, Mark, as you said, she is the leader of the group, or at least the co-leader of the group. She's the one who really provides the I guess the, the, the backbone of the group, the d- direction, the moral compass. Almost like the military side. Hera is my favorite character. She is Han Solo, Mon Mothma, and Princess Leia rolled into one character. She doesn't take any guff. She's not out there shaking her boobs around, getting things. She gets things done, okay? She's a strong female character. She's the only one who's taking the show seriously the whole time. You don't ever see her joking around and... And she knows what's at stake. Hera is my favorite character, bar none. I like Hera. I wish we got more with Hera, though. I feel like she got she has such depths that we could go to and see, like, where did she come from and like how did she get here? Just in general, like, what are her like, you know, what makes her tick? And I feel like she didn't get a whole lot, and I found that kind of frustrating because, like, Barrett, she's really interesting, and I want to know more about her. Um, I love that she is like the leader, but she's perfectly happy to let everyone think that that Kanan is the leader. And and she's totally happy with that. And she's kind of the one behind the scenes making everything happen. And no one really even thinks about it. I really enjoy that. See, that was the thing about A New Dawn that really drove me nuts was it it did feel more like it was Kanan's backstory because so little was really presented for Hera herself. That's another character that I would love to see more as well. 
it'll be interesting to see her background when it is finally revealed. It does seem like there is some darker secret to it, which should be interesting as it plays out. I don't want to say she didn't get much characterization this season so much. She didn't get much backstory. Characterization-wise, the performance carried it off well, and the things that she did, I mean, we kind of know her as a person. We just don't really know her in terms of her background and the depth of the character that we would necessarily like to see. Uh, I'm with Mark in that, to me, A New Dawn, it just didn't provide that level of depth. You can hear about it as we and Jonathan talk about it in that episode released a while back when the two feeds. Um, I guess, to me, with Hera, one thing that stands out, and I didn't really think about it until something Barrett said. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Something Barrett said in our coverage of the last episode. Barrett made the comment about how, well, now that Ahsoka's here, we don't need Hera anymore. And I still disagree with that, but we talked about where that came from, and he made the comment, well, well, Hera's been the one making the plans, and now Ahsoka can do it. But to a degree, Hera a lot of times wasn't the one making the plans. It tended to be Fulcrum coming up with plans, or at least coming up with missions, and handing it off to Hera. Hera is very much the lieutenant in this whole thing, as opposed to being the general. I think it'll be very interesting to see where this goes in terms of her interactions with the other characters and the other rebels, now that we do have that upper tier seemingly more directly involved. And maybe that's where we'll start to see more depth being given to the character. Like, maybe this is sort of to set her up, and it's the whole rebel hierarchy that's going to be the real driving force, but they couldn't do that until they built up Fulcrum and all of that in this season. I hope, because it's a great character. She needs more depth. Let's talk about the rest of the crew. We have Zeb, who I'll say that when I saw him, I thought he was going to be the sort of stereotypical muscle character, that there was going to be no depth to him, that basically his greatest joy in life was going to be just banging troopers together. And we find out that he's got an interesting backstory. And again, that was our first episode of the regular season, Droids in Distress, where we learned that Zeb is a Lassat and He's an endangered species because the Empire wiped out his planet. And that was something that I never expected from a kid's show. Oh, that was so brilliant. And on top of it all, Callus had a hand in it. I, I, I think when that part of Zeb's backstory came forward, my appreciation for Callus as a villain rose exponentially. It was like it was like the Grinch gaining a heart, but me loving this guy for being evil. I was just like, oh my God, he's just he's just brutal. Like and he's like, and I do it again. I was just like, whoa. See, I got to flip that around, though, because as cool as that was, and as much as I like the depth given to Zeb early on, he was one of the first characters in this series that we got some background on and made us feel like, oh, we got to care about this character. And, oh, there's this grudge match between him and Callus. Aside from later during Empire Day when he almost shoots Callus and Kanan's like, nah, shoot the Inquisitor. And he doesn't really wind up managing to hit either of them. The depth doesn't come back. Zeb gets depth for an episode. And then he becomes basically the gruff, beat-em-up-and-comic-relief guy for the rest of the season. So in a lot of ways, I think he's fallen into the stereotype that we expected him to be, especially after watching uh, the little short he was in. We've seen the promise of depth with droids in distress, but I don't think the depth has paid off. Not enough, not yet. When he faces Callus again, or when anything happens to reference that again. At all. Even if it's just disruptors showing up on the battlefield and him getting extra angry or something about it again, it's not going to feel like it had the payoff. It felt very self-contained for something that's supposed to be backstory. 
I'm going to agree with Nathan. I feel like I was a little bit frustrated with Zeb because he was starting to get this development. And then kind of similarly to what my my concern or my frustration with the other characters is, we started to kind of get these little episodes about the other characters, including Zeb. And then it was just like very shifted back to being very Ezra-centric. And, and everybody else just kind of is playing off of Ezra and they don't get a whole lot. And that is very frustrating. Zeb is one of the more difficult characters for me. He's Chewbacca, right? He's supposed to be Chewbacca. Everybody likes Chewbacca. I mean, Chewbacca did not really have to work that hard in the original 1977 Star Wars film for people to like him, right? Zeb kind of had his his work cut out for him. He's the strong man of the group. I don't like the fact that he's playing grab ass with, with Ezra all the time. I hate that. I hate that. I want him to be like the Punisher. You know, he's got to kind of be like the uncle type, but more of the stern uncle type. And you kind of see that. I mean, they have the episode where he's just demolishing stormtroopers. I mean, just fight with his bare hands. He's not scared to face off with with Callus or or the Inquisitor or anything like that. He's very brave. I just don't like all the grab ass. And that's part of the Disney Disneyfication of Zeb that I hope they get away from in season two. Now that they're kind of a part of a rebellion, they're just a cell, and they might have to take it a little bit more seriously. I, I know it's a kid's show, and you, you kind of have to have that, but leave the comic relief for Chopper. See, you're not going to see that go away, because that's the family aspect there. That's the, that's the thing to Ezra's Johnny Storm right there, and that's and with when it comes to Fantastic Four, that's one of the aspects that make them Marvel's first family, which is a key to what sells. I mean, there's definitely a family aspect to the crew of the ghost. And I think that that the, their relationship, I mean, while you were calling it grab ass, I, I see it more as two people that started out kind of rivals that have become more friends. I mean, cause you know, Zeb had to share his room with Ezra. So like Ezra came in and just started encroaching on his space right from day one and was cocky. And uh, Kanan really <laughs> took a liking to the kid right away. So there were all these little angles that really kind of irked Zeb right off. But eventually he came around to the kid. And now they've settled into this kind of pecking order. I mean, there, there are episode or uh, comments in like, uh, one of the last few episodes where they were talking about, uh, you know, Zeb's face being the one that, that scared the puffer pig and things like that. And, and it, I don't know. I I'm loving that kind of banter before him. He's supposed to be Chewbacca, okay? He's not Chewbacca, but he's supposed to be our Chewbacca character. I don't want Chewbacca. I mean, the the best Chewbacca played grab ass was he was playing Dejeric, and that was cool. You know, there's I'm, all I'm saying is there's ways you can still have a family atmosphere without him, without the killer of the team all of a sudden turning to a puppy dog. You know what I'm saying? Wait, and, isn't that Chewbacca though? No, well, that's I don't the thing, know. With I Chewie, don't think so. It was different. Barrett said, you know, you didn't need the slapstick to make people like Chewbacca back in the original A New Hope film. But it strikes me that after the films, when we're starting to talk about Star Wars comics and novels for decades, he did virtually nothing. He was basically the babysitter and sitting back as the muscle. And nobody really gave a crap until they dropped a moon on his head and killed him. And then, oh, everybody was so sad Chewbacca was gone, but he wasn't being used well. Granted, we can tell what Zeb is saying, so he's got that advantage over Chewbacca. But you don't want him to wind up playing that type of Chewbacca role in that he just becomes the muscle. Chewbacca, it was the banter between him, or the banter, the uh, the presumed banter between him 
and Han Solo that really made the character. And here, it's the banter between Zeb and Ezra that's making the Zeb character. But Zeb needs to be more, or he's going to wind up falling into the same type of trap as Chewbacca, and maybe not get a moon dropped on his head, but wind up playing second fiddle to everybody else. Uh, he already sort of feels like that. Him and Sabine, in a lot of ways, feel like that to the other four. That's not really something that hopefully should be allowed to continue. But the difference between him and Sabine is that Sabine feels to me that she could develop into more. Sabine could be a leader because she's Mandalorian. So I'm not worried about Sabine, but... Racist! Lasats can't be leaders! (laughs) Racist! (laughs) They need a lot of work on Zeb. And I think because we can understand him, I think that is detrimental to his character more than it helps. Because we can't understand Chopper, Chopper, and I'm liking him just fine. Regarding Sabine, uh, as we're sort of working our way into the other characters here, I think, Baron's right, this is a character that shows a lot of promise, but I wonder how much they're playing up on the whole, like, well, she's Mandalorian, she must be cool. I mean, that was what we knew about her when she was first added to the crew. Well, she was a girl, but Ahsoka was a girl, granted two years younger when we first met her, but... She wasn't going to be our point of view character. That was going to be Ezra. So here's this character like her because she's Mando and she's got a pretty decent personality as we've seen. She's got the witty banter. She's got the explosive skills and whatnot, but she just like Hera has this mysterious background. We don't know anything about that really needs to be fleshed out so that she doesn't wind up being this character that well, like her because she's Mando with Hera you get the sense that they're building that background to be revealed someday. With Sabine, you you get that same thing. But I don't think Zeb is getting anything like that because his really sort of has already been revealed. She's got somewhat more promise, perhaps, than Zeb in that regard, but she was really kind of given the short end of the stick this time, too. I mean, what do we know about her to any real depth? Well, I'll tell you, maybe it's the psychologist background that I have, but I really like her. Because she's not right in the head. She's a pyromaniac. Well, we got Chopper to be not right in the head. Well, yeah. Okay, there's two. um, Well, actually, when you come to think of it, I think maybe only Hera is the one who isn't dealing with some severe emotional baggage. But, I mean, Sabine loves to watch things blow up. She's the mad bomber of the group. Now, I like her because she's snarky. And you almost feel like she'd fit in really well with our group because she she is snarky and she gives Ezra all sorts of crap. She gives everybody crap. And I don't know. I I really like this character. She's got a unique look and she she's not something that fits into an easy stereotype, which again is something that I think this show has going for it. She provides an aspect Sometimes we think that she might be a possible love interest for Ezra. Other times it's kind of the big sister. There's really a lot of different ways that we can go. We have gotten some indications of a very interesting backstory, and I'm really, really hoping that they follow through on that. We'll get to that in a little bit when we talk about what we hope they do with season two. But as far as as a character, I find something very engaging about her. I get, I just feel like a broken record. I, I feel like we we have gotten teased a little bit about some of her background and some some of her characteristics and stuff, but like we don't get any detail. Like I feel like Zeb got something and Ezra has gotten something and Kanan's gotten something, but like the other two haven't really gotten 
anything. And I really desperately want to know more about Sabine because she's interesting. And, and like you were saying, Jonathan, she's a little unhinged and it's, it's fun. And I, I would like to know more about her, uh, but I feel like she's kind of just a thing for mostly Ezra to play off of. And, and I hate that they're kind of hinting at a possible romance with them. I really hate that. I hope they don't go there because I would suck. I've said it before. There is no way a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl is going to like a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy. Okay? They like older men. They're, it's just contrived. I understand why Ezra is attracted to Sabine. But Sabine should have no interest in Ezra. She should like Lando. She See, liked Lando. I married a woman that's the same age as me, man. I got to disagree with that. I, I, did you I marry her alone. at 14? No, granted, I didn't marry her at 14, but... See, I'm of the opinion that that what she's doing right now makes sense. You know, she's playing the hard to get. She doesn't want to be with a young kid. Padme didn't want to get with a young kid. She did. I mean, I'm one who's I'm fitting the pattern of the younger woman, older man thing. My wife is nine years younger than I am. But teaching for years in a high school with people around these ages, you Baron's right. You wouldn't really usually see freshmen dating juniors or sophomores dating seniors. But then again, these are based on our social norms, not necessarily those of a galaxy far, far away. I think they're leaning in that direction. They've hinted at it pretty heavily. If there's anywhere they're going to go with the characters having any kind of relationship, it's probably going to be those two. Hell, we'll probably see those two get together or or take a, an overt liking to each other before we ever get any clarity on what's going on with Hera and Kanan. It would suck, as Jen said, because it's too obvious. It's it's very contrived. It's what you expect. And this is a show that has the potential, maybe not going far out of bounds, like turning Ezra completely to the dark side for good or killing him off or anything. But they have the ability to go outside of what is the conventional expectation. Don't bring them together. Give them a chance to be more like brother and sister and have that begrudging affection or something. Or maybe have it be a point where Sabine finds someone. Ezra is upset about it, kind of like he was with her and Lando talking, <laughs> but then give it a chance for Ezra to grow almost like a brotherly bond with that person and maybe have him be on the outs eventually with Sabine so that we have a situation where we have, you know, a character building aspect playing off the attraction without there actually having to be the relationship. Because then, I mean, where does it go? It either stays a relationship and becomes the norm and you get no tension with other characters or you wind up with them splitting, and then we have the contrived teenage angst at each other because they just broke up kind of stuff. It just, in what looks like a family-style environment, it's a dangerous thing. I mean, unless you're going full-blown Lannister on it and you're just going to have brother and sister together <laughs> and not care. See, I want to see them get together, but nowhere, like the last episode kind of thing, where, you know, it's clear he likes her all the way through, I'd like to see maybe we find out something like, you know, her dad or her mother was a Jedi. And that's part of, you know, what she fell out with the Mandalorians and or fell out with the Imperials over. You know, we know that she had something going on with the Imperial Academy and there was some reason why she left it. Maybe it was because she had some force sensitivity and she started to trip some Inquisitors, uh, you know, tests and stuff. I think that that would be an interesting twist to have her be force sensitive as well. And suddenly there's that new dynamic with the girl that he likes. Now she's also training to be a Jedi. I, it kind of reminds me in a sense of the Luke and Mara, how they were kind of off again, on again with the with the attraction there. And for so long, they drug that out before they finally accepted what was inevitable. 
I mean, Mark, you're reaching more than Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> It'll never, never happen. Hopefully. I've said that things that will never happen and they, they would do it, but it would be so contrite. It would be awful. Sabine's so much can be so much a better character than that. Killer. She would be her impact on this show would be so much larger if you give her a season or two and kill her and let her be what drives Ezra to the dark side and to have them have to somehow drag him back screaming from it than to have it be, well, here's a love story and have that be what drives the character. Even if it's have it be a love story where they actually get together and she dies somehow to drive him to the dark side. Make it an unrequited love that's bordering between that and family and brotherhood, sisterhood, and rip her away from him somehow. They could use that type of character change to influence the entire rest of the show. If they're going to do anything as far as changing the status quo of her relationship with the rest of the crew. Again, something daring, maybe not as daring as what they might try, but we've got to hope that with the good that we've seen so far, that they're willing to take those kinds of chances. Because, especially if she's not getting all that many toys and merchandising. I mean, it seems like they're they're really downplaying the females still in that regard. Maybe there's a reason for it. We don't want to necessarily see them wipe out characters early, but maybe it's like the you guys were saying last time with the Inquisitor, right? Well, you can market somebody else. The one last character in the group is somebody nobody's going to have a love affair with. Chopper, the homicidal astromech. For me, this is a character I, I really like because he he really is the the funniest. I mean, you go back to him messing around and trying to pit Ezra and Zeb against each other. Another time, he's flooding the ghost with coolant and choking out Ezra or chucking milk cartons at him as he's trying to train with a lightsaber. I mean, this droid has some serious wiring issues. Here's the thing about Chopper, okay? I'm not a big fan of the whole droid with personality. You know, it kind of goes against the whole thing. And R2-D2 is okay, you know, so it's no secret I'm not a big fan of that. He has grown on me, though. I will say he has grown on me. He is homicidal. He gets a pass on a lot of things. I mean, he's, he's actively trying to murder a teammate or did he murder another droid in one of the episodes? I mean, this, he is very peculiar, this droid and he's kind of growing on me, but I hope they don't just go too far with it. I mean, he is a droid after all. I don't know. I don't know, Jonathan, you're gonna have to explain to me why you like him so much. He just seems he's, he's, he's got the, the comic relief, but He's going to have a lot more growing on me to do. I think he's great because of the comic relief aspect of it. He's not a Jar Jar slapstick comic relief, and he's not really the sarcastic comic relief that we got uh, for the most part in the classic trilogy. He's just straight up. There's so many times he does something you go, oh, S word. Oh, Seth, what did he just do? Because he seems to do everything with so much you know, abandon. The only thing. That I don't like about the character. I mean, and I even like the way he talks. I don't necessarily like the fact that, you know, we get to have to interpret R2-D2 over and over again with them reusing the same bleeps and bloops from the films just rearranged constantly. But with Chopper, you can kind of tell what he's saying when he goes, you kind of know that he's dropped a WTF there. Um, The only thing that gets me is his name. C1-10P is his operating number. 
And yet that turns into Chopper. It assumes that the way they're writing is writing in basically our alphabet and our numerical system. And even that is still kind of ridiculous because the only way you get Chop out of it is to look at the 1-1 as an H, which has always rubbed me the wrong way. It is a little thing. But I wish there would have been any other reason to call him Chopper. Like, give him a completely different number, R5-whatever, and just have it be a story as to why they call him Chopper instead of it being, oh, look, a one, a dash, and a one. It's Chopper. Just like, you know, maybe the serial number on that Imperial type of Starfighter had a one dash, O dash, one. We're going to, it's a TIE Fighter. We're going to use that number on the TIE Fighter because it looks like one. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that, that I find was interesting, because Barrett, you were talking about how Chopper knocks the other droid out. I thought that would have been a great moment to have illustrated the fact that he is such a psychopathic homicidal maniac. Because, you know, we do see that the droid survived, and I was kind of bummed. I was like, I was expecting to see just scattered droid parts across like a little acre, you know? <laughs> I was like, oh, he lived. You know, so apparently somebody's paying attention to that because they don't want Chopper to be officially a homicidal maniac. Oh man, Baron, I don't know how you can not like Chopper. Like the fact that like all I can hear are is like cussing coming out of him and it makes him to me hilarious. Like he's like this angry bitter little dude trapped in this robot body and he's just angry about everything and and cussing up a storm and it's he's by far my favorite character because he's the most entertaining person in this crew, I think. Dude, and Jen hates everybody. That's what happens when Kenny Baker's left in the droid, droid body too long. No, I, th- I think they're going to crack him open and find a pissed off Ewok. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Jonathan, it, it just until you said that, that's what he is. He's he's a droid if, if, if an Ewok was a droid. That's who Chopper is. Uh, I get you know, it now. I got to say, though, that during the lead up to the finale, the episode where we saw Chopper do this little extra uh, out of space moment where he's blasting away from the Imperial ship and the ghost is kind of rotating and spinning around him. That was a really cool moment for the character. I like the fact that they're able to make a, a droid that looks so cobbled together look like an Imperial droid by just spray painting him and that the rest of the Imperials are just too stupid to figure out. Hey, you're not authorized to copy that. Like, duh. <laughs> Yeah, but all the Imperial officers look the same, too. True. Hat's just down low. (laughs) We've talked a lot about the good guys, but to a lot of people, Star Wars is all about the villains. And I will say that Rebels has its share of good villains. Starting from the very beginning, we had the ISB agent, Callus. Now, this is a guy who, when I saw pre-production art, I'm like, holy crap, look at those sideburns. He, he's going to be a joke, but anything but. Uh, Callus's sideburns are truly epic. I mean, there's something about the fact that they line up with his helmet that did make him seem like a comical joke at first. But once the character came out, you know, I, I had a problem with the voice actor at first. You know, I, there was something about it. He, he seemed too British. But in the episode where Zeb and him confronted each other and, and the zeal that that character took in what he was saying to Zeb, uh, I just, like I said earlier, I fell in love with that character exponentially for the evilness that he had because that's what I wanted. I wanted an Empire agent that was just so evil that he just gave you that feeling that everyone had when they first watched Darth Vader strode onto the Tantive Four. Yeah, Agent Callus, he, he came off as a character like, oh, God, I'm not going to like this character. Uh you saw a lot of the early promotional stuff for, oh, what is it? Is it Star Wars? It's not Star Wars Commanders. It's just Star Wars Command, those little army figures that they don't paint. Yeah. 
that are overpriced. And, and he was like the the poster child image for that. It was like, oh god, it's just going to be a lame army man type character for the Imperials. He's not going to be interesting at all. And I actually find him more interesting than the Inquisitor because we've got a character here who's got this cool background connection to Lasan. We've got the fact that he, we said early on, he is able to give the Empire a sense of menace that in a lot of ways we haven't seen outside of the original trilogy. And granted, it's a new canon and everything, but Imperials oftentimes weren't given this level of menace. It was always, oh, well, the good guys are going to win, of course, but not anymore, not with Callus on the scene. I'm actually somewhat disheartened to see how much they sort of downplayed the character's role throughout the back half of the season. It's kind of like once the Inquisitor showed up, he was the awesome one to have on the scene, but he's the one that felt more in line with what we'd seen over and over again with the films as far as Sith and Dark Jedi and, oh, the, the enemy's going to carry the red lightsaber and, you know, love him because he's cool because you're not going to get any depth to the character. Whereas Callus had the depth and the fact that he could be a menace without the Force stepped him up there as someone right alongside, say, a Tarkin. Um, that he was someone to watch out for. And I'm glad they didn't kill him off, as I was kind of afraid they were going to do once the Inquisitor came fully on the scene. And speaking of the Inquisitor, this is a character that I thought was going to be a joke. Initially, the look of him, you, you thought he was going to be the Grievous of the series, that he was going to be, you'd say mustache twirling, but in this case, lightsaber twirling character that the heroes were going to laugh about outsmarting every single time. But the real masterful thing that Rebels did with him is it made him a credible threat. He was, I mean, if Callus was good, the Inquisitor was great. You know, when the Inquisitor first showed up, I thought he was going to be our first tie back to the Clone Wars. I for sure was convinced he was going to be the son in some form or some fashion. I mean, the modeling of those two looked so close. I think that was one thing about it that, that really threw me off when we realized it wasn't. I was like, well, why would you choose something so like that other one? But the character himself, like, you know, I believe it was Rise of the Old Masters. That episode really made me think, you know, he's his level of evilness is almost Palpatine-esque, almost Thrawn-esque in the way that he would go about setting traps. I mean, granted, they they didn't work in the end. So you did have that sense of like, uh-oh, we, we've got that G.I. Joe and Cobra thing going on here. You know, like, is he going to step it up? But the way season one handled his arc, I think it serves the overall story real well. Wait, I got to ask, though. Did he have an arc? He served the greater arc. And he certainly, I mean, he looked a little odd. His lightsaber was flashy and cool once you know, we got around the idea of what it would look like in action versus what it sounded like in concept. He still looks a little odd and a lot like the sun. But we never really got depth to him. We don't know anything about how he became an Inquisitor. We don't know anything about his relation uh, with Vader or really any of the other characters, including the ones he was around constantly. Uh, like Tarkin and uh, Macath Tua and Kalis every time we see them, or Kalis, excuse me. But he was on screen, and it was, and he had a great voice actor. But I don't know that he ever really got much characterization. It's it's interesting to hear Jonathan say that that if Kalis was good, then the Inquisitor was great. I think it's the other way around because the, the Inquisitor didn't get much to do. He was constantly kind of doing the same things. So I got to ask, what arc for him? Well, there definitely wasn't one, did he? 
there wasn't a big arc like what you see with Ezra and things like that. But for what we get of the character, I mean, yeah, I think it qualifies as an arc, a weak one. But I, I think for me, the most interesting things about the Inquisitor are the things that aren't shown. You know, how did he become an Inquisitor? Are there more than one Inquisitor? What's his name? And yeah, these aren't things that are, are shown. But I think with what they did present, it did give an idea that this guy had a bigger role. And it definitely made, if not for him personally, the position of Inquisitor, the interest got ramped up a lot with what they did with that character. Well, for me, I had the same feeling at first when you first started seeing the promotional items for the inquisitor he looks so much like the sun why would they like you said mark why would they choose something so similar but then he was so different and the way he's different from grievous say the original mustache twiddler and i loved how jen quoted uh coined that phrase here is that when he would lose it was to no fault of his own it seems it seems that the Inquisitor kind of taking things into his own hands and our heroes had to find some way to defeat him. Kind of Luke-esque, you know, Luke and Han on the Death Star. You know, it's nothing really that the crew of the Death Star did for them to escape. And then we find out that Vader let him escape, which is here nor there. But as far as, as back to the Inquisitor, when he loses, it's not any fault of his own. It doesn't diminish his menace, if I should say that. And I like I like the Inquisitor. And I think that they killed him off. I think he's dead. I think we should discuss that. Is he dead? Is he not dead? I hope he is dead because it leaves room for more Inquisitors. And if he did not have an arc, at least this is the guy that we will base all other uh, Inquisitors on or Dark Force users on. And... It, this was a guy who set the bar pretty high, as far as I'm concerned. So is he dead? You think he's dead? I hope so. I hope so, too. I think that would be the better choice. I mean, we talked in the last episode about, well, is he dead? Because obviously they could get some more mileage out of the merchandise if he's not. But I really hope that Rebels is at a point where the merchandising doesn't dictate the storytelling. Maybe it will be. Who knows? He was a heck of a lot less mustache twirling than Grievous. That was my fear, is as soon as we saw images of him, like, way back at um, New York Comic Con when I went, they had a bunch of stuff with him, and they were like, OMG, check this guy out. And it was like, "Mm, he's totally going to be, you know, Grievous 2.0. And, I mean, he can't, they can't have him win and have it still be a Disney show. So that was to be expected. But, like, he was most interesting to me because they killed him. And they killed him really quickly. And it was like, oh, okay, that was kind of interesting. I did not expect them to off him that fast. So that is intriguing. And I'm, it's kind of too bad because he's more interesting now that he's dead because I want to know why he feared, you know, Darth Vader quite that much. And maybe is there somebody coming up behind him or, you know, who's going to be our bad guy for next season? Yeah, that definitely ramped up the intrigue there. It was like, wait a minute. Kanan didn't even defeat him. Like, he's so afraid of Palpatine and Vader, he's just going to let himself go? Like, whoa. That last bit of dialogue that he said, that some things are, what is it, more scarier than death, or you can fear more, you know, you fear something more than death, that kind of opened the door for, it's huge, that kind of opened the door for some unimaginable evil that we do not know about, because this guy was so bad, what could he fear? And 
I hope they open the door and he is he is a an inquisitor and there's a whole mm-hmm. group of these inquisitors out there and he wasn't the baddest of the baddest. Or or another twist, what if he is cloned? I mean, because the one thing I was thinking of was in Legends, uh, Bevel Lemelisk was was one of the original designers of the Death Star that Palpatine cloned and would torture this poor SOB over and over and over again. And through the cloning process was able to make it so this guy knew he was being killed and then being brought back to life. I mean, could you imagine something like that where, where it's almost like the Cylons, the way they reboot, you know, and then the Inquisitor's back to life and he's being tortured by Palpatine. Like, there, there's so many angles that could go with the Inquisitors from here just with his death and him moving out of the way didn't arnold schwarzenegger make a movie about that too <laughs> i was thinking it would totally explain you know how the the emperor's wrinkliness was at one point explained by clone bodies deteriorating maybe that's how they're going to explain away the the inquisitor's whole corduroy face lothal being the imperial world we did get some other imperial characters and again with rebels we got some characters that you almost expected to be throwaways, but they ended up being recurring. And the three most prominent were Minister Tua, Commandant Oresco, and Taskmaster Grint. Unfortunately, with Commandant Oresco and Taskmaster Grint, we're not going to be seeing them again because, uh, well, they were made an example of. I thought, again, we talked about it in the episode, but it was a very brave and satisfying way to deal with characters again it's not something we would have seen in clone wars i kind of wish we actually had them from clone wars like i I mean the characters themselves were an interesting use you know they're two new but new nobodies but it would have been cool if they took two nobodies from the other show and brought them into here what we get at the end of their arc uh you know it was one of those things that made me stop and have that what i like to call the new jedi order moment you know it was like whoa nobody's safe because i really thought they were going to be some safe characters someone that we would see reappear again you know those character models dropping off so soon in the show was surprising but i like the way that it ramps up the threat level of not just you know the inquisitor at that moment but the empire and and tarkin you know, I mean, we see Tarkin later wipe out whole worlds. So, I mean, you know, the level of evilness that comes with that man is always fun to watch. But I don't know. Those two characters were, were kind of interesting when they first started out. But really, as Rebels in the, itself, their death is what made those characters more meaningful. I mean, they were just kind of nobodies up until that point. I think it was less the matter of them as characters being killed off. So much as it was just, here's these character models that were part of all this early material, like the visual guide. And now they're gone. Macath Tua didn't really make an impression on me much, especially when we found that they were reusing her character model in crowds. It's like, oh, so she's not even worth having a character model of her own now? What's the deal? Grint and Oresco did not much of an impression, but I like how they do provide some measure of continuity with other materials. Like, if you're reading Servants of the Empire, the Zare Leonis books... The fact that they're in those, or mentioned repeatedly in those, along with Tua, provides sort of that backbone of what's going on in Lothal to give you a connection to the rest of what's going on with Rebels. It's not just Zare that makes all the difference. You've got these other connective tissues. So they they were good for that role. I'm not sure they're really going to be all that missed, or that we really would put them on any kind of list of top characters of the show by any means, even if that list went all the way to like 25. But they serve their role well. You know what they did, this this death? Wasn't this, weren't they Admiral Ozzel? You know, weren't they the Admiral Ozzel of the Rebels so far? I mean, it kind of was like a callback to when 
Vader's killing his admirals for being incompetent. And it seems like that's exactly what happened here. So I will miss them because this was a callback for me to the original Star Wars of how you can see now that the Empire, this is how it starts. They're not going to take incompetence or failure. They'll kill you. And it seemed like they didn't even see it coming. So it's almost like this is the start of when the Empire starts doing this kind of punishment for failure. Add to that the the Inquisitor's comments, you know, I mean, it's just like, wow, the Empire does have an evilness there that while it's not 100% shown to the viewer and to the Rebellion, the citizens and especially those serving the Empire sure know about it. Yeah, so they're my Ozzel. I knew who face. they were, yes. but like, like they have certain facial features. It's like, okay, it's that guy. But like, I never really worried about their names. And when they died, it was like, I, I turned to my husband, actually, it's like, apology accepted, Captain Nita. You know, that's exactly the kind of thing that we see in the in the original trilogy it was like oh okay so this is you know the start of that you know you you die if you fail work policy <laughs> makes me wonder why they have so many officers in the imperial army but i thought that was fun <laughs> they die when another character which drawn from both the clone wars and the original trilogy comes onto the scene in rebels grand moff tarkin this character, I was surprised to see, but I'll say, in my opinion, he worked really well. We know that something is going on on Lothal. We know that the Empire has major designs for that world, and there's something very important going on there. So much so that the governor of the Outer Rim Territories makes a personal visit and stays on this world to try to get things back on track. And it does kind of lend a importance to this that, again, I hope that we learn more about in season two. But how did his coming onto the scene in Rebels work for you guys? Seamless. It was absolutely seamless. In fact, it seemed like this Tarkin character design didn't differ as much, you know, than like, say, Ahsoka did. You know, Ahsoka kind of looked like a totally different character. He looked exactly the same as he did from the Clone Wars. I mean, with the menacing, looked like a like a pasty skull. You know, that's how I want my <laughs> my Imperial. And he, it was just seamless. You wouldn't have thought to bring him in because we already had Callus, but it worked. He worked. It doesn't seem like he's going to be pushed into the background character. I mean, they're introducing Vader in the original movie. He's holding Vader's leash. So if they're going to introduce Vader, he, somebody's got to hold his leash. It might as well be Tarkin. It was seamless. Yeah, you definitely get that feeling like, you know, Palpatine himself isn't taking this stuff serious yet, so he's sending Tarkin and Vader in. Uh, you know, there's just so many angles about Tarkin when I first saw him, though. I don't know. I, I, maybe I disagree with you a little, Baron. When I first saw him, I didn't think he looked exactly like he did on the Clone Wars. It wasn't until I saw the side-by-side -side comparison of the full face with half of it being the Clone Wars and half of it being Rebels. Then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I can get behind that. He definitely had a very Skull-esque look to him in Rebels that it took me a second. Not as long as it did the Stormtroopers and getting past that, but I did have a moment with the, the stylization. And I think for me overall, that's been my major complaint with the show is those little moments where at first I'm like, I don't know about that. And then, you know, I watch the episode and I'm like, okay, I can get past it. But it, it takes me just that little moment, you know, that little gut check. You know what it was about... Tarkin is that in the Clone Wars, he had this, he has the, in the original movie, 
even in the prequel trilogy, when we see him briefly, he has this stature to him, the way he walks, mm-hmm. the way he stands. And they brought that over from the Clone Wars. When they introduced him in the Clone Wars, he had that, and he has that here. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. That's what I mean by seamless. I really like seeing him. I think that, yeah, it was sort of seamless in the sense, for me, of the character coming over. It made perfect sense for him to fit in here. We had just gotten the Tarkin novel that had given us more background, more that Stober effect, so to speak, on this case, Lucino, in making me interested in where this new canon was going to go with Tarkin. And here he is showing up center stage again. I wouldn't necessarily like to see him around all the time because he has other duties he should be attending to. Uh, but I think it worked pretty well, uh, particularly the the transition. The, the visual, to me, at first was jarring. I wouldn't say he looks exactly like in The Clone Wars, so I guess I'm sort of more leaning towards Mark than Barrett on this one. But it makes a nice step. If you look at Peter Cushing and you look at the way we saw him back in The Clone Wars, maybe skipping a little bit over Wayne Pygram's version of him just briefly in Revenge of the Sith, The look here seems like a nice middle ground between the two. He's a little more gaunt. His hair doesn't stick out quite as much and make his head look like a triangle anymore like it did in the Clone Wars, like half the angles were in triangles in the Clone Wars. And the fact that as he shows up, he pulls what he pulls with Grint and Oresco. That is, to me, the epitome of Tarkin. It's not so much the, well, it's Vader with Ozzel. It's that's the Tarkin doctrine. Rule through fear and fear of force. Right. This idea that, you know, you set one example and everyone else will fall in. You know, fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle station. Well, now fear will keep the other Imperials on Lothal in mind. Fear of getting killed like Oresco and Grint. Uh, he took all that menace we've talked about, about characters like the Inquisitor and Callus setting up for the Imperials in Rebels and took it up a notch because his appearance wasn't just a guest appearance. His appearance was, here's a new level of baddie to have to deal with, including the other Imperials having to deal with him. He became sort of a threat to everyone except perhaps Vader and the Emperor in that sense. He was used very well, but I'm, I think I'm with, I think it was Barrett who said, I didn't expect to see him in the show, but it's cool that he is. One thing from Tarkin that springs to mind toward the end of it, they talk about, you know, Vader, Palpatine and Tarkin himself being a a triumvirate. Uh, And I think that that is one of the things that when I see Tarkin show up, when I think about that, it makes me realize where he's at. I mean, you know, he's not just a moth at this point. He's the grand moth. And, you know, like I said before, Palpatine's not really going to be focused that much on the rebels. You know, he's always been like, you know, let's not deal with them. Forget the Jedi, forget the rebellion. Come on, Vader. We got bigger things to handle. Why? Because he's got Tarkin on it. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So seeing Tarkin in this regard, seeing him step in, like I could see Tarkin being around even more so than Vader, where he calls upon Vader when Vader's needed up until Palpatine calls on Vader for something else. And then Vader has to leave. That will be a slick way to keep Vader in the show and yet not have that problem where you've created Vader as Grievous 3.0. Wasn't that in an interview with, I think it was Dave Filoni, where he was saying that, like, we cannot have Vader chasing these rebels every episode and failing because it will completely destroy Vader's credibility. And mm-hmm. and I think having maybe Tarkin involved might work a little better because we've already kind of seen Tarkin's credibility here. Like, he's blowing up Imperial stuff just to, you know, just to spite almost these rebels and like we see how ruthless he is and so he's not losing credibility as much but like if we have you know if we have darth vader playing the mustache twirler next season that'll be awful 
No, 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 no. I think what you just said clicked for me. You need Tarkin right now because Vader, what we've seen, Vader isn't Vader. Vader is what we've seen so far. He's kind of like the seething monster. And it's going to be interesting to see how Vader's going to be depicted. But I think we're going to need Tarkin around. I think Tarkin is going to be the one who's going to make the attack dog attack. Barrett, I couldn't agree with you more. And I am looking forward to seeing how they portray Vader next season because he is the ultimate baddie, but I don't want to see him deluded. And I'll be honest, when we found out that Vader was coming, I was surprised because I always knew that Vader was going to be part of this series. I didn't know when, but I didn't think it was going to be this early. I think, I guess I'm torn as to the reason why. Maybe it was even a, a letting us know a week to two weeks before the episode that he was going to be there. And everybody was kind of shocked. I figured they would do it like they did with Maul in the Clone Wars, where they teased it. And then they had this whole sort of almost promotional campaign to let everybody know that he was going to be there. But maybe it's just because it's a different type of series. But the other thing that I find myself wondering is, what does that mean for the series of Rebels? I mean, we had talked earlier this season about what type of longevity we thought that this series would have. And I know we'll talk about that in the second part of this sort of look back at season one. Is the introduction of Vader now mean a shorter run? Because they really did raise the stakes by bringing in Vader. He's going to be the one there to take care of things. And just knowing the character of Vader like we do, do we really think that he's going to allow them to continue operating on Lothal? Are they going to have to find someplace else to hang their hats? I think this is a definite, definite uh, clue that Filoni and company do not think that this show is going to be on past maybe three or four seasons why else would you bring vader in now it's almost like having the car chase the steven seagal car chase in the beginning of the movie why would you bring in vader and have him lose and then have him just walk away after he's defeated i don't think that's going to happen unless filoni pulls something out of his hat and he kills ahsoka or something and then he just has to get away from lethal after he does something like that so i think this is an indication that they may be thinking that this is only going to last a couple seasons because The Force Awakens is going to be out this year and then the supplemental movies after that. So uh, maybe this is this is a, a clue that they're thinking about the future. To me, this felt more like if we were going to have Ahsoka and like have characters from Clone Wars and from the trilogies, then why not have Darth Vader in there? I felt more like a, a carrot to be dangled. Like, don't, don't quit on us. Like we, this might not have been like exactly what you wanted, but look, look, things you like. And, <laughs> and so that's what it felt like to me. But that comes from you who maybe isn't as invested in the series as the rest of us are. You know, I could see that though, Jonathan, she might be right because they just kind of made an announcement that there will be season two and it's going to be, you know, debuted it at Celebration, but they just haven't said anything about season three or any, I mean, we even know the Flash has been going to go to season three. So uh, she may have something there. I don't doubt it. And I, again, looking at the Disney model for some of their shows, these things only have a two year lifespan. They, they, you know, they come with an expiration date. So as you said, Baron, the force 
Awakens comes out later this year. Are they going to continue Rebels, or are they going to maybe pick up with another series that more directly ties to The Force Awakens, maybe even using these characters? But we've learned also this past week that there are going to be, what is it, Nathan, 20 new novels that kind of lead into The Force Awakens? Not novels per se 20 new stories but they're including new books but they're including like comics and sticker books and stuff like that and with it but there's quite a few including one that's apparently going to be a new trilogy well let me ask you a question does any of these new material does any of it take place in the rebel area the rebels era era the whole point is it's the journey to the force awakens it's filling in the gap right but does that, so far, no. They've see, given that's, us some that take place after A New Hope between Empire Strikes Back, some between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and we've got, I believe it's Aftermath that takes place right after Return of the Jedi. But there's a lot of those books they still haven't given us the details to. So I would expect, like, maybe the sticker books especially, that they're going to have the things. What they're, what they're really ramping up, though, is there are going to be lots of hints and a lot of characters and backgrounds and things that you're not going to know are part of The Force Awakens until you're sitting down and you're like, oh... But remember what they did, though. I mean, we got this burst of, you know, here's going to be all these new books after months of, well, the only new book that was coming was supposed to be the Empire and Rebellion novel of Luke that became heir to the Jedi. But that was it. And then here's a burst of, oh, here's all these new books with the new canon. And then it was nothing. You hear nothing about what's coming next after, say, Lords of the Sith and Dark Disciple. And then it's, boom, here's all this stuff leading up to Force Awakens. So... You know, we could be that there are other things already in the works for this time period. They're just not telling us, especially given that we have Celebration Anaheim coming up, where they tend to drop as big a bombs as they can as far as newsmaking announcements. As for Vader, for me, I kind of like that he's here to add more menace. I don't want to see him turn into the goofy, grievous, mustache-twirling villain, which we've said plenty of times. We kind of went into this in our last episode. I just want to see how they use him. Because something struck me in the newest issue of the Vader comic as of the time that we're recording this, the Darth Vader number two from Marvel. Vader, in the way the old Legends continuity tended to use him when they used him in this period, was almost like an unstoppable force. He was, as Mark has referred to him, sort of a weapon of mass destruction. But it seems like they're trying to redefine him a little bit in the way the new canon is working. We haven't seen him do much of anything here except give orders and walk off a shuttle, right? But in... Darth Vader number two, we have General Tag, or Grand General Tag at this point. Uh, yes, Tag from A New Hope, who survives in this continuity now. He apparently left before the thing went kablooey. And he's talking to Vader about this mission where basically Tag's in command and Vader is answering to him. Kind of like a Tarkin-Vader relationship. And he says, Tag that is, says, In time, you will understand that this is all for the best. You should think of yourself as your lightsaber, a singular weapon from an older time, and one that is dangerous to everyone around them without a skilled hand to wield it. In time, you will understand that I am the skilled hand you've been waiting for. And it makes me wonder if we're sort of getting back to a basics thing on Vader where he becomes something that's more like what we saw in A New Hope. You don't quite know what he's going to do. He's more this sort of shadowy, dark figure that could become whatever menace we expect him to be but needs to have someone with reins holding him back, like a Tarkin, like a Tag, perhaps like what we're going to wind up seeing here maybe with Tarkin, that Vader could play a role that's different than sort of the Sith Berserker 
that we seem to have come to expect because of all those years of the way he was portrayed in this era in a continuity that, in this case, no longer bears relevance to what we're seeing on television. Yeah, Jen mentioned, you know, Filoni's comments about not wanting to see him be the the villain that's always, you know, stumped by the heroes. And I think, you know, when you've got him showing up in the Darth Vader and he's going up against Luke and Leia and them, he's already running that risk. So when you have him in Rebels, you really have to be focused on that. So, so Dave's comments actually put my mind at ease because, I mean, bringing Vader in now that you have Ahsoka showing up, the fact that you have these two there adds a dynamic that you wouldn't necessarily have with just either one on the show. Now, I, I'm not one that wants to see that become the focus of the show, but as a side plot, a third plot, or whatever you want to call it, it's cool to see that carry over from the Clone Wars, that there is some kind of potential for a confrontation between Master and Padawan, between Vader and Ahsoka, Anakin and Ahsoka. I, I think that that potential there is really interesting, but they've got to be very careful, because you don't want to basically neuter the character. No, I think Vader shows up because he's going to kill Ahsoka. You can't have Ahsoka in Rebels. You can't have she has she's her own star. You can't have it. I think that Filoni knew what he was going to do with Ahsoka as soon as he found out that they were going to have a Rebels. I think he knew exactly what he was going to do with Ahsoka. He kind of said that they asked about Ahsoka. He says, "We know what we're going to do with her." So, I think Vader's here to kill Ahsoka, and I think we'll see that. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is at first they said that they didn't have a plan for her, but then it became one of these no-brainers. They were like, well, Fulcrum, we should put her there. And that was something that I found interesting because they'd already said the comments about Vader before they had decided to stick with the Soak and Slider in there. So it was like, oh, so now you've got her in here. Now you are bringing Vader in after you said you weren't going to be hanging on him. So it's like, does that mean that she's not going to be showing up that much? She's dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when Filoni says something about what to expect on the show. If he's telling you something's not going to happen, it depends on the smirk on his face. If the smirk looks like he's holding back a laugh, then it's probably (laughs) not going to happen. If the smirk looks like he's holding back taking a crap, it probably will. Now, Nathan, back to what you said about Vader and kind of how this new continuity may be interpreting him. And I read that episode of Vader as well. And I got to say, I really hope you're wrong because that would so diminish the character for me. I don't want to see him as simply a weapon. I don't want to see him as simply a tool that anyone, a Tarkin, a Tag, can use for their own ends. In my mind, and this was even before the expanded universe expanded on it, in my mind, Vader has always been the second in command of the Empire. You know, when you think back to how he was in A New Hope, how Tarkin was able to tell him to release Mahdi. That was because he was in Tarkin, you know, he was on Tarkin's battle station. You know, that was Tarkin's domain. And he did it more as a, okay, well, I guess so, but not because he had to. And when you think about how he was in The Empire Strikes Back, Vader ruled, and the only person that he had to answer to was the Emperor, not you know, Admiral Ozzel, not Admiral, but he didn't have to answer to anybody. So I, I really hope that's not how, how this goes. And as you say that, and I think about the way he's being handled in the Darth Vader comic, the way he's being handled to some extent in the regular Marvel Star Wars comic, and a little bit of how he was paired up and why he was paired up with Tarkin in the Tarkin novel, uh, which we'll have a chance to talk about very soon. It kind of makes me sit back and wonder, and I didn't think this until you were saying that, there is a gap between A New Hope 
and Empire, which, unless they've changed it, was a gap of three years. That's three years and, what, three months or something like that. What if what we're getting here is the beginning of seeds of a transformation for Vader? That Vader, I mean, like, like you said, he's basically working under Tarkin, under his heel in A New Hope, but has very much free reign and is just killing officers left and right by Empire. What if we're finally going to get essentially a lead in here of a weaker Vader or one that answers to others and the continuity will finally, with these comics especially and the way he's sort of standing up to tag in subtle ways and whatnot, maybe he's finally going to come into his own. Maybe what we're seeing here is the idea that the transition from Anakin to Vader took a little bit longer psychologically for him and he finally is going to get tired of being under other people's control or having the Emperor berating him for what happened with the Death Star that he's going to become the menace that we eventually know him to be, that'll make him bold enough to try to get Luke to turn to the dark side and go up against the Emperor, kind of like he had wanted to do back right before he became more machine than man with Padme at his side. I guess it never really would have struck me until now the idea that there could be an actual character arc for Vader starting with this series. It's kind of like Vader is Vader. Having Vader here, well, he's just Vader. Doesn't maybe, Tarkin maybe not? Maybe there are seeds here for something greater in the broader new canon. Doesn't Tarkin also talk about Vader not really being attached to the military per se? That that he was something else. I mean, what if after Tarkin dies, Palpatine's just like, you know what? Forget it. You just you have control of of the military. You know, I mean, what if at that but, point but, it becomes? But official? we know he doesn't. We know he doesn't. At least not immediately because we got tag and it's all one continuity now. Everything is equally as valid. So Darth Vader one and two nixes that. Well, I'm saying like before we get to Empire Strikes Back, I mean, right now, this could be the next phase invaders chafing with the next guy in charge. And by the time Empire Strikes Back comes down, we find out Palpatine's just like, ah, forget it. You're in charge at this point. He doesn't play well with others. Time for the self-contained process. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this first of our two-part look back at season one of Rebels. But before we go, we have a little surprise for our listeners, Nathan. That's right. If you're a listener to the various podcasts on the Second Airborne Division, you may not be familiar with this concept yet because it's not something that tends to be the norm. But if you've listened to Republic Forces Radio Network, this should sound familiar. Summer programming, right? Generally, back with Republic Forces Radio Network, anytime that there was a big gap between seasons, generally in the summer, we would cover something else. We'd cover droids. We'd cover Ewoks, uh, the Tartakovsky series, whatever. Right? Anything Star Wars animation or something that struck our fancy. Well, we've pretty much covered all those now. So we have a different process, but the same idea of summer programming this time around. What we're going to do is the team, or as many as can be involved, are going to get together and do some audio commentaries that you can listen to while watching episodes of Rebels. But obviously we don't have the time to do commentaries for the entire series. So we're going to let you all be the ones to make the decision. You can email us at rebelsroundtable at starwarsfanworks.com, same email address that's been in our opening and ending and everything, and make your subject line episode votes, and in the body of the email, tell us the one episode you would most like us to do an audio commentary for. No differentiation between Spark of Rebellion being double length and the others. Just treat it as, give us an episode. And we'll take the three that get the most votes and over the summer produce audio commentaries for all three. Hopefully by the time we come back for season two, whenever the premiere date is finally set in stone. So get those votes in and have them in by May the 4th. 
and we will get those out as quickly as we can. And we look forward to seeing which episodes you want to hear us discuss. So until next time, I want to thank my co-hosts for kind of going over these myriad of topics. And Jen, a special thank you for rejoining the group. We have missed you. Thanks. So until next time, long live the rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, Droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.